Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 195, and it's a continuation of our mini-series on the Secret Service. Today's episode covers a Secret Service agent on the White House detail who was nominally in charge in Dallas on the day of the assassination. His name is Roy Kellerman. In the next episode, we will cover William Greer, the Secret Service agent and driver of the presidential limousine, a vehicle more formally referred to in Secret Service lingo as SS-100X. Greer and Kellerman were the only two Secret Service agents traveling in the presidential limousine that day, and their actions, and in some cases their inactions at the moment the shots were fired, are an important determinant in the outcome of things that day in Dealey Plaza. So that is why we are starting with their stories first, in this deep dive into the Secret Service personnel that make up this story. But lest you think that problems or criticisms should be heaped upon either one or both of these men only, because that would be quite unfair. Unfair because there are simply others who are also culpable and were present that day, all coming one by one, And you'll hear about each, one by one, in upcoming episodes. We couldn't do the kind of storytelling that we are about to do if it wasn't for the wonderful books written about this topic by Vince Palomara. His principal book, Survivor's Guilt, is where I have drawn much of the storytelling today. And he has so many others for good reference that we draw from as well, including the Not-So-Secret Service and who's who in the Secret Service. All great books with much richness to use when addressing this topic. Before we dive into the story of Roy Kellerman or William Greer, it's worth recounting one more time which Secret Service agents were where that day in the plaza and elsewhere, and in some cases what their roles were, because each of them plays a distinct role in the events. And, of course, there were agents at the Trademark and also back at Love Field, not to mention the higher-ups that remained back in Washington. So let's reiterate the more important ones germane to the story we are about to tell today and also mentioned a few other more important facts, such as the cars they were in, as well as the positioning of those cars within the motorcade itself and in relationship to the presidential limousine. Let's start with the executive management, so to speak. Three names that you already probably know well from other episodes. First, James Rowley, who was chief of the Secret Service at the time of the assassination. Rowley has been previously introduced to us, and he was the face of the Secret Service in light of the questioning by the Warren Commission in the aftermath of the tragedy. 
Then there was Robert Bauck, also previously introduced on this show and who was head of the Protective Research Service, or PRS. That was the group responsible for identifying persons or groups that might be a threat to the president's safety. Think of them as a division of the Secret Service. Think of the White House detail itself as another division of the Secret Service. And back in Washington, the man who headed up that White House detail was Gerald Bain, spelled B-E-H-N, not Gerald Blaine. Those were two different agents with very close names, but very different juxtapositions in the story. Bain, B-E-H-N, was the SAC, or special agent in charge of the White House detail. He was the man who headed up the day-to-day protection of the president. He was agent number one, so to speak, in the White House detail. It should be noted that Bain had been on the job working nonstop for the entire time that Kennedy was in office, and he had not had a vacation in about three years. Secret Service agents get 30 days off each year or thereabouts. But under their vacation policies, it was a use-it-or-lose-it scenario. Bain had mostly lost it. So he finally decided to take a vacation, which overlapped the Dallas trip. His first in three years, and probably well-deserved, but it turned out to be a disastrous decision on his part. Bain would normally travel with the president and head up the Secret Service entourage during any travel engagement. Bain's decision to take vacation not only took him off the playing field during the Texas visit, but it placed another agent in charge of the entire White House detail during his vacation period. And that was the number two man in the White House detail, and his name was Floyd Boring. Boring would assume the role regularly played by Gerald Bain, the role that Bain would normally undertake on such a trip, except that Boring himself would stay behind in Washington. That's right. Both the number one and the number two men in the White House detail made decisions that prevented both of them from going on the Texas trip. Boring was indeed available, so to speak, in Washington, but he too was attempting to gain some downtime from the grind of presidential travel. Boring and Bain have quite a pedigree in the Secret Service, and we'll tell that story in another episode as we introduce each of these characters in a bit more detail. Boring himself was a player in some of the most important Secret Service events of the 20th century including being present in Warm Springs, Georgia, the moment that FDR passed away. And his own actions were integral in thwarting an attempt by Puerto Rican nationals to assassinate President Truman. Agent Boring always seemed to be near the real action. The decisions of those two men, Bain and Boring, to be absent from Texas resulted in Roy Kellerman, a seasoned shift leader and generally recognized as the number three man in the White House detail, well, it caused him to be assigned to the trip and function as the nominal Secret Service agent in charge of the Texas trip. Kellerman would get this assignment just a few days before the trip to Texas commenced. Bain and Boring's actions may have seemed routine and 
justifiable at the time, on the one hand, working for so long without relief. Look, at some point, you need time off. But reviewed in hindsight, after the tragedy, well, it seems quite dubious. And Gerald Bain was severely criticized for his decision to take vacation at that very moment and not go on the Texas trip with the president. Every trip out of town requires advanced preparation by the Secret Service. They are intricately involved in the planning so that the requisite decisions surrounding the trip itself and the related security precautions, and they can be coordinated by all who have a hand in it. Those groups include, but are not limited to, the PRS section of the Secret Service, the White House executive staff, local law enforcement officials, other locally prominent participants who may have a hand in the political planning, and of course, the coordination with the FBI, and even at times, local arms of the military. And finally, with the local Secret Service office detail, stationed in the city or environs where the president is going. There was a special agent charged with advanced planning for each of the individual cities on the presidential tour of Texas. And we've previously introduced to you the man responsible for the Dallas segment of the trip, and that was Winston Lawson. Lawson would be on the ground that day on November 22nd, and he traveled in the car that we mentioned earlier in the front of the motorcade. In that same car is Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry and Dallas County Sheriff Bill Decker and local Secret Service agent Forrest Sorrells. And their job was to scan the area, including the buildings, in advance of the presidential limousine's traverse. The car they would ride in was a hardtop. And one of the most important functions that this lead car had that day was to look up into the windows of the high-rise buildings that were present all along Main Street in Dallas, and even more so in the twists and turns of Dealey Plaza. And yet, they were not furnished with a convertible that day. So there was Forrest Sorrells sitting in the back seat of the lead car, and he was positioned in such a way that he only had a limited view peering forward from the right rear seat and out the front window. A very limited view of anything in front of the car, and certainly not very high up on any one of the high-rise buildings. At best, he was from time to time forced to thrust his head out of the right rear door window and attempt to contort and look up. <laughs> not a very effective way to see much of anything. Imagine that scene as they traversed through the tight turns of Dealey Plaza. Yes, it was a day that the folks in that lead car should have been riding in a convertible. And a simple question for us to ask is, why not? Now, the next batch of Secret Service agents we'll describe were riding in the presidential follow-up car, more formally known in Secret Service lingo as SS-679X, and also more informally known as the Queen Mary. It was an older model Cadillac, and it was also codenamed for communication purposes as Halfback. Well, whether you refer to it as Halfback, SS-679X, or Queen Mary, 
the car was situated right behind the president's limousine, and it was normally within just a few feet. Now let's back up for a second. Normally, we would first be describing members of the Secret Service who were on the presidential limousine itself, but there were none that day on the presidential limousine. Now, whether that was by presidential fiat, as the Secret Service would attempt to have you believe, or by mandate within the Secret Service crew, is an important point that we'll explore. So who was in the presidential follow-up car? Well, there were 10 individuals in total that were crowded in that Secret Service car. Eight Secret Service agents, along with two presidential aides, Dave Powers and Ken O'Donnell. Yes, two of his closest friends had a bird's-eye view of the shots which hit the president in the head. First, the driver was Secret Service agent Sam Kinney, and seated to his right in the right front seat was Emory Roberts, the shift leader or quarterback. In the rear seats of the car were agents George Hickey and Glenn Bennett. Powers and Ken O'Donnell sat in the jump seats. Hickey, as you recall, is famous for being the Secret Service agent who brandished the AR-15, but wielded the weapon too slow to do any good. And even though his efforts fell short, he would later be accused of accidentally discharging the AR-15, and then wildly accused of sending a bullet into the presidential limousine, a completely unfounded rumor or theory. This car was an older-style Cadillac. Remember the ones with the wide, rather robust fender cowls? Well, that made for a natural installation of a running board between the front and the rear fender cowls, on both the left and the right side of the cars. Those running boards made it a lot easier for the agents to step on and off of the car, as they frequently toggled from following behind to moving closer up for protection whenever that was needed in the moment. Not so much, though, that day in Dallas. The other four Secret Service agents were located on the outside of the car, two on each side, riding on those running boards so that they could be in a position to make a move at a moment's notice for protection purposes, and with the ability to jump off and move forward quickly to the presidential limousine if needed, something Clint Hill did four times that day on the Dallas trip. And he did it despite orders issued by Emory Roberts to stay off the presidential limousine. More on that again in a moment. Remember that the president sat in the right rear seat and Jackie Kennedy occupied the left rear seat. So as you might expect, the assigned agents in the Queen Mary took their cue from that. Because Mrs. Kennedy was on the left side of the car, Clint Hill, assigned to guard Mrs. Kennedy, was stationed on the left front running board of the follow-up car. Behind Hill, on the left rear running board, stood Bill McIntyre. Now we move to the right side, or the president's side of the limousine. Agent John Jack Reddy was stationed on the right front running board of the presidential follow-up car. John Reddy was primarily responsible for President Kennedy's safety while the motorcade was moving. He was the agent closest to the president in the follow-up car. Agent Paul Landis, of more recent notoriety, 
occupied the right rear running board position behind Agent Reddy. So it was these two agents, Reddy and Landis, on the right side of the Queen Mary that had primary responsibility for the protection of the president. Well, at least as it would come from the follow-up car. Shift supervisor, Agent Emery Roberts, was the quarterback of the follow-up car. What he said that day, the orders he barked that day to the men in the follow-up car were to be strictly followed. And there is no doubt that what you will hear shortly about what Roberts did at the moment of the shots is startling. But what he did before that at Love Field was the prelude of things to come. As the presidential motorcade made its way out of Love Field, Roberts would stand up and make a motion to Agent Don Lawton. Lawton had just stepped onto the footstool of the presidential limousine and grabbed the handrail. But Lawton had apparently not received the instruction to stay off the presidential limousine the normal position that he and other agents would assume. Robert's motion was to wave him off. Lawton, in a moment of disbelief, dismounted and raised his hands to the sky several times, as if to say, what is going on here? Lawton and Agent Henry Ripka would stay behind at Love Field, and the result would be no field agents mounted on the presidential limousine. No agents continuously in close position to act as a human shield, if necessary. Need I say more? That moment at Love Field was captured on TV footage, and it is, at least to myself and to many others, a moment of disbelief. Disbelief by Lawton. He couldn't believe that they were waving agents off the side of the presidential limousine. Almost 50 years later, a handful of the Secret Service agents on the detail that day would write a book and finally, in their own view, tell the story as it was about that day in Dallas. The book is known as The Kennedy Detail. Vince Palomara would later say that the book got its start with a 22-page letter full of questions, which Mr. Palomara sent to Secret Service agent Clint Hill. I'll spare us any more of the details on that. Well, the book came out, and it was full of statements that Palomara, through his research, concluded were not true. And there were many. He lays them out very particularly on a YouTube video. One such fact was addressed by Clint Hill in the year before the book's publication. Hill would appear in 2010 on a CNN interview and state that Lawton, at the moment he raised his hands in the famous scene at Love Field, the moment he was kicked off the presidential limousine footstep by Emory Roberts, Hill would say that Lawton was simply telling them all that he was going to lunch when he would see them back at the plane. Hill went as far as to say that he had just, prior to the interview, confirmed that fact again with Lawton himself. For a period of time, Henry Ripka was thought to be that agent in the film clip. But in reality, Ripka was just outside the view of the camera lens. 
This was promoted for a period of time by Vince Palomara. That is, that the agent was Henry Ribka. Years later, the agents themselves corrected the mistake and attempted to use it to rewrite the narrative around what Lawton was really trying to convey with his hand gestures after being kicked off the presidential limousine. But for me, that dog don't hunt. I must have watched that film a hundred times. I can't even once believe that Agent Lawton was displaying anything but dismay and perhaps a little disgust at being kicked off that running board. And at least for me, he sure as heck wasn't telling the gents in the follow-up car that he was going to go get lunch. Nope, Mr. Hill, that dog just don't hunt with me. But I'll leave that up to the audience to form your own opinion. Go out there and take a look at it. It's available all over on the internet. But after all, there are no spoken words by the agent on that film. So only those that were there that day really know. Really know what was said in that moment. (laughs) Still, I think the nature of the hand gestures and general body language, well, they say it all for me. Silent film or otherwise. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 195 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Roy Herman Kellerman was 48 years old at the time he occupied the right front seat of the presidential limousine on November 22, 1963. He would sit next to the limousine's driver, who was another Secret Service agent named William Greer. Kellerman and Greer were the only two Secret Service agents in the presidential limousine, and they were certainly the closest Secret Service agents to the president. Greer, as the driver, would not have been expected to be a human shield. But certainly, Kellerman, sitting right next to him, well, he would have. Kellerman and Greer were required to undergo questioning and provide testimony in front of the Warren Commission. Only four Secret Service agents in Dallas that day were required to speak to the Warren Commission. The other two were... Rufus Youngblood, and Clint Hill. Clint Hill was actually assigned to Mrs. Kennedy and perhaps is the most well-known of the Secret Service agents in Dallas on that day. Hill is, of course, famous for his courageous dash toward the presidential limousine. He was the only agent situated in the presidential follow-up car to do so, to dash toward the presidential limousine in an attempt to become a human shield. Why, you say, was Clint Hill the only one to do so? It was a dash made in the midst of the gunfire, and we will soon learn that it was a dash in contravention of a direct order given at the moment of the shooting, a direct order given by the lead agent in the presidential follow-up car. Yes, that introduction is an eerie thought to begin this podcast with. 
More to come shortly, so hold on. Clint Hill was able to reach the presidential limousine and mount the rear trunk before it sped off. He was doing so in order to protect the president and Jacqueline Kennedy as the shots were being fired. It was captured so vividly on the Zapruder film and other famous films and pictures, too. Sprawled on the back of the limousine, pushing Jackie Kennedy back and onto the back seat as she attempted to retrieve a part of the president's skull that had landed there. In his actions, Clint Hill's actions may have surely saved the first lady from tumbling off the car. He would hang on for dear life as the limousine accelerated and push himself up the trunk and toward the back of the limousine to aid in the protection of the president and his wife. Eventually hovering over both Jackie and Jack as they sped to Parkland Hospital. My God, can you imagine what he was looking at close up for those few minutes between Dealey Plaza and Parkland? Clint Hill's dash was too little and too late, but it was the only attempt by any agent in the Secret Service to do so. And the fourth agent who testified before the Warren Commission was Rufus Youngblood, who famously smothered Lyndon Johnson as the shots began to ring out. We're going to go through the story of all these agents and many more one by one as they slot into the story of that day. Virtually all of the agents on the detail that day in Dallas were required to submit reports to the head of the Secret Service, James Rowley. But why only four of them were required to give Warren Commission testimony is puzzling at best. Because many of them, and certainly those in the presidential follow-up car, had more than an eyewitness view. They had the eyewitness view from the back at a very short distance so short that part of the president's brain and skull were splattered on the windshield of the follow-up car. As the driver of that car, Secret Service agent Sam Kinney would later chronicle. Was their absence an attempt to limit the terrible redundancy of the most gruesome part of the crime? Maybe but it certainly underscores once again how the Warren Commission in certain ways missed its mark to include all of the most credible evidence, including, in this case, testimony that might have truly supported a shot from the knoll or somewhere close by, but in the front or on the side of the president and not just from behind. One more clear piece of evidence that the Warren Commission was attempting to avoid where they could reasonably do so, anything that would be in contravention to the lone gunman theory. Now let's pivot back to Roy Kellerman. So many of the trip details were adjusted in the days and the hours before the president stepped off the plane at Love Field. One of those things, and one of the most important changes, was to assign Roy Kellerman as the nominal agent in charge in Texas. And that change happened on November 18th, 1963, just a few days before the start of the trip. Kellerman was a veteran, and he was generally well-liked by many other Secret Service agents in the White House detail. But like so many things that play into this story, these last-minute changes undoubtedly 
introduced some level of risk into the security apparatus. Roy Kellerman got his start in law enforcement with the Michigan State Police in 1937 at the ripe old age of 22. And it wasn't long after that that he joined the Secret Service detail in Detroit. And that happened in 1941. And in early 1942, just a few months later, he would be transferred to the Washington, D.C. field office of the Secret Service. And almost as quickly from there, he would be temporarily transferred to the White House detail as a special agent. That was the first of two runs on the White House detail, and it was a good long one for Roy Kellerman, running from 1942 to 1951. It lasted nine years. And it spanned three different presidential administrations, including FDR's, Truman's, and then the early period of Eisenhower until 1951, when Kellerman was transferred to the Indianapolis office of the Secret Service. He would make his way back to the White House detail in early 1955, some four years later, fresh and ready for his second time around. Kellerman's White House communication code was digest. He was a rather large man physically, and according to the account of him in Vince Palomar's book, he apparently was soft-spoken, and he moved slowly. And so some of the other agents, rather sarcastically, but I suspect affectionately, called him Gabby. After being back on the White House detail for about seven years, a shift supervisor lead opened up. And on October 1 of 1962, Kellerman became an assistant special agent in charge, heading up shift number two of the White House detail. Shifts generally run as follows. From midnight to 8 a.m. is shift number one. Second shift is 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And third shift is 4 p.m. to midnight. Yes, it's always 24-7 coverage. And they have shifts just like any other job something that puts it in perspective for many of us. You know, this work might be done in the midst of rarefied air, but it has some of the same basic tenets of any job in town. Regular pay and overtime, too. Kellerman comes under some level of immediate suspicion for what appears to be some untrue statements that he made right around the time of the assassination. On the night of JFK's assassination, Kellerman would tell the FBI the JFK actually uttered these words upon being shot. Get me to a hospital. Well, for Mr. Kellerman, the core problem with this assertion is that JFK could not possibly have said that if the first bullet to strike the president was the one that went through his throat. Doctors would later confirm that the shot JFK sustained through the throat would have rendered him powerless to speak, and it was further confirmed by Jackie Kennedy, that the president did not speak after being hit by the shot that went through the throat. Kellerman would also say that he saw President Kennedy reaching with his left hand behind his back, possibly attempting to touch the spot where he was shot. The only problem with this statement is that none of the films of the assassination show President Kennedy's arm near that position. So, in short, both of these statements appear to be false. I'm not sure either one of these untruths in and of themselves makes a great deal of difference. 
But then again, if they couldn't possibly be true, why would he have made these statements? Kellerman has other involvement in this story. So the real reason for bringing this up now is to raise the question as to whether or not he's being truthful on other points besides just what happened at that moment in the limousine. The now-famous duo of FBI agents, Seibert and O'Neill, now famous for their presence at the president's autopsy and their equally famous memo chronicling the events of that night, well, they quote Kellerman as saying, on the night of the assassination, and I quote, the advance security arrangements made for this specific trip were the most stringent and thorough ever employed by the Secret Service for the visit of a president to an American city. Kellerman himself would later deny ever making this statement. Five days after the assassination and after the president's funeral on November 27th, Seibert and O'Neill would come to the White House to interview just three Secret Service agents, Gerald Bain, head of the White House Secret Service detail, and the two Secret Service inhabitants of the presidential limousine, Greer and Kellerman. Somewhat strange in this circumstance was the noticeable absence of Floyd Boring from that group, the number two Secret Service agent who was in charge of the White House detail back in Washington while Bain was on vacation, and the man with overall responsibility for planning the Secret Service portion of the Texas trip. But I digress. Back to Kellerman. Not everything Kellerman allegedly said or did had a suspicious tone to it. In fact, some things he said reinforced the unusual circumstances that seemed to be present around the trip. For instance, Kellerman, in his role, would make what turned out to be the second check-in with the protective research section, and that occurred on November 10th, just 12 days before their presence in Dallas. It was a check-in to determine the existence of any threats, and again, on this second check-in, the answer was that there were none. In 1964, Gerald Ford, the congressman on the Warren Commission, would question Kellerman himself about this very fact. And Kellerman answered that he, too, found that the presence of no threats was, and I quote, unusual. Kellerman would hear the first shot, and suddenly the presidential limousine slows, and the brake lights come on. Greer, at that moment, turns around to look at the president and then turns back around to look ahead, with Kellerman then yelling to Greer, let's get out of here, get out of line, we've been hit. But Greer, instead of hitting the gas, Greer would effectively disobey the order and look back at the president for a second time, further delaying the acceleration of the car. Unquestionably, at this moment, Greer violated Secret Service protocol. Perhaps because it must have been truly unbelievable. But that was not all here. Kellerman never left his seat, and he made no attempt whatsoever to get to the back of the limousine and play his part at being a human shield. And remember, he had at least six seconds or so to try and do that. As you recall, six seconds was the approximate amount of time between the first shot 
in the last or fatal shot, at least as the Warren Commission times it, using the Zapruder film and other photographic evidence. While Kellerman didn't leap to the back seat, he did grab the microphone attached to the communication radio, and he radioed ahead to Winston Lawson in the lead car, stating that we've been hit. Lead us to a hospital immediately. Tell the police to escort us as fast as they can. The Zapruder film confirms that Kellerman was focused on sending the radio message as it shows him with microphone in hand. Kellerman's late arrival onto the scene as the nominal agent in charge just five days before the visit to Dallas, and even less than that for the rest of the trip, may have been the reason why he testified at the Warren Commission hearings that he had no prior knowledge of the parade route. Just exactly what did he mean by no prior knowledge? If you're the nominal head, you have to know something, don't you? William Greer, the driver, would say the same thing during his Warren Commission testimony. <laughs> Hard for me to believe that the driver of the presidential limousine didn't know the route, and he was simply relying on following the lead cars to wherever they were going to take him. <laughs> I'm just saying. And again, how much this really matters is, well, not much but it does give some additional insight into the basic level of advanced preparation that these agents were putting into their roles in guarding the President of the United States and leader of the free world. And on this particular matter, not that much. How indicative. One of the most controversial questions is whether Kennedy himself gave any orders to remove the agents from the running boards of the presidential limousine. One White House detail agent, Joe Paolella, who was not on the trip to Dallas, but was interviewed by Palomara, recalls that JFK did indeed tell Kellerman to keep the agents off the running boards of the presidential limousine. Yet, Kellerman himself through two lengthy sessions with the Warren Commission and testimony at the HSCA, as well as other outside interviews with researchers, well, he never said any such thing in any of those venues. As we have already said, right at the moment the shots rang out, Roy Kellerman did not attempt to climb into the back seat and protect the limousine's inhabitants. Instead, he got on the radio and communicated a message. Now, after the fact, he would be criticized for this decision to get on the radio rather than more instinctively attempting to become a human shield for the president and or the other passengers. Many believe that he could have reacted quick enough after the first shot to do just that, to get back there and act as a human shield and thereby thwarting the assassination attempt. I think this might be debatable, but in any event, the Warren Commission asked Kellerman this question directly. Why he didn't react and immediately move to the back of the limousine and become a human shield for the president. Kellerman would answer the question this way. If I thought in my own mind that I was needed back there, there wouldn't have been an obstacle strong enough to hold me. And because my job is to protect the president, sir, 
regardless of the obstacles. Hmm. If I thought in my own mind that I was needed back there, that's an interesting way to put it. Well, at the hospital, of course, it wasn't long until the president was pronounced dead. And then the tussle over the president's body. And finally, the ride which the president would make, this time inside of a coffin that was inside of a hearst, and headed back to Air Force One. Kellerman would be in the hearst. Greer and Kellerman were the only Secret Service agents who stayed with the president's body during the course of the autopsy. More to come. And we may, to some extent, have Roy Kellerman to indirectly thank for the original bootleg photographic copies of the autopsy and their becoming available and sparking so much controversy. Yes, Kellerman was the man who told Secret Service agent John Fox, here, make a set of copies for yourself. They will be history someday. James K. Fox was a former photographer for the Intelligence Division of the Secret Service. Fox would eventually get into touch with radio journalist Mark Crouch, and Crouch would obtain a set of copies of the photographs. Kellerman would later get a look at the limousine itself. After the president's funeral, and after it had purportedly been returned, perhaps from its clandestine trip to Michigan, something he would do with another agent, Darwin Horn. Kellerman would observe the mark made in the middle of the windshield by a fragment and eventually state that he thought that there had been a conspiracy involved, a fact that Palomara confirmed once more by speaking with his widow, June, after Roy Kellerman's passing. It wasn't just the Warren Commission that had a problem with the protection that the president received that day. The House Select Committee on Assassinations also had their day on this topic, declaring in 1979 that the Secret Service was deficient in the performance of its duties at the time of the assassination, and that President Kennedy did not receive adequate protection in Dallas. Regarding the conduct of Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, the House Select Committee on Assassinations specifically called out his performance on that day, saying the following, No actions were taken by the agent in the right front seat of the presidential limousine. Obviously, that is Roy Kellerman. No actions were taken to cover the president with his body, although it would have been consistent with Secret Service procedure for him to have done so. The primary function of the agent was to remain at all times in close proximity to the president in the event of such emergencies. I wonder how Roy Kellerman felt after reading that, or had the 16 years of torment that occurred prior to that moment toughened him up for such a personal call-out by the HSCA on the matter, or maybe not. I wonder, because... Roy Kellerman lived only another five years after that. And Kellerman had other questionable moments that had been called out in the research about him. 
In Vince Palomara's book, Survivor's Guild, Palomara recounts an odd conversation that was released unedited and is contained in one of the Air Force One tapes of the trip back from Dallas on November 22nd. On that tape, Kellerman makes reference to JFK's body, but seems to stop short amidst some garbled transmission, short of completing what he is going to say about it. And then he indicates that the volunteer boys will go over his car and so forth. Volunteer is, of course, the White House Communications Agency name for Lyndon Baines Johnson. What exactly did Kellerman mean here? Who exactly would be the folks going over the car? Now, obviously, whoever they were, they were part of President Johnson's team or connected to him. But what exactly would they be doing that for? Could it just have been a simple reference to Secret Service agents? Certainly, there was a crew of Secret Service agents that would examine the presidential limousine beginning later that night on the 22nd. And maybe it was just as simple as that. Was he referring to them or someone else? Was it simply the routine review of the evidence that the car itself represented or the process of repairing the damage? The latter of which is something that seems hardly relevant at that moment in the tragedy, but more on the presidential limousine later. Kellerman was an assistant special agent in charge or ASAC at the time of the assassination. After LBJ became president, he would declare that Kellerman was about as loyal a man as you can find. But he was dumb as an ox. By the way, Johnson wasn't known for his manners. Needless to say, he wasn't one of LBJ's favorites. He ended his career in 1965, just two years after the assassination at a desk job as an assistant administrator. Kellerman died in 1984 at the age of 69. According to Vince Palomara, Harold Weisberg interviewed one of Kellerman's two daughters in the 1970s, and here is what she told Weisberg. She said, I hope a day will come when these men, and she was referring to Greer and Kellerman, I hope one day that these men will be able to say what they told their families. Well, I'm pretty sure they never did. That is, they never did tell the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to episode 195 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Thank you.